Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a student of the Bible. If you're new to the Bible, welcome, and thank you so much for making that decision to start to listen to my podcast, and hopefully you're listening to others as well. My podcasts are appetizers, and I hope it encourages you to dig deeper into the Word. And if you're a long-time student, thank you so much for deciding to listen to my podcast as well. And I hope that you pray about how potentially you could share this information with others. I hope you are blessed by this podcast, and I look forward to getting feedback from you. If you have comments or questions or concerns, please leave it on my website, studentofthebible.com. Welcome to my second podcast in my series on Mary and Joseph, the earthly parents of Jesus. In our last podcast, we focused on the gospel writers of Luke, whose birth account seems to be from Mary's point of view, and the gospel account of Matthew, who seems to be told from Jesus's earthly father, Joseph's point of view. We discussed the fact that we learn so much about the faith and integrity of both Mary and Joseph and the way that the gospel writers tell us that they reacted to this news of a miraculous conception. They both acted with great faith, humility, and acceptance. We learned a bit about what it meant in ancient Jewish tradition to be betrothed. It was a year-long process of preparation. Typically during this time, the groom would be building a home for his future wife, and the two families would be haggling over a bride price that would go to the bride's family because of the sacrifice that family would have to make by losing a potential worker in the family home. We also learned a bit about the preparation the future bride would be making. As there was no quick mode of communication, the bride would have to be ready for the appearance of her groom really at any time. We discussed how Jesus alluded to this custom of the bridesmaids keeping their lamps lit because they didn't know the exact day or hour that the groom might arrive. We know that Jesus was telling this story of the parable of the ten virgins as a way to convey the need for all of us to be ready with our lamps lit in preparation for the groom's return. Now, for us, the groom is Christ, and we as a church are his bride. Matthew 24, 36 tells us, But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Unquote. In today's podcast, I want to investigate a little bit more about what we know about Mary through what the Bible tells us and through what historians tell us about what life was like for a young woman in that first century AD. What was life like for a young woman during the time of Jesus? First, Mary was a Jew and she spoke Aramaic. 
Her Hebrew Aramaic name would have been Miriam. Her husband Joseph, his name would have been Yosef. And Jesus's name would have been Yeshua, which is transliterated as Joshua. Most likely, Mary was born in Nazareth. And during this time, it was a small town of maybe 1,600 people. Mary would have also heard Latin spoken by the Roman soldiers. Greek would have been spoken because that was the language for trade and also among intellectuals. And she would have heard Hebrew because that was the language that the Torah was read in the synagogue. Most likely, Mary belonged to the peasant class and they made their living through agriculture and also small commercial ventures like carpentry, which the Bible tells us was the profession of both Joseph and Jesus. And groups in this peasant class made up 90% of the population. And therefore, they bore the huge burden of supporting the state and that small privileged class. And before you start thinking that we have it so rough, people in first century Israel had a triple tax burden. They had to pay taxes to Rome, to Herod the Great, and then to the temple because traditionally they would owe 10% of their harvest. Interestingly, artisans like carpenters made up about 5% of the population and they would have an even lower median income than those who worked the land full time. And so historians believe that carpenters, in addition to selling their craft, would also have to do some kind of farming to supplement their income. In the time of Mary, the family unit was very important. You know, that picture of the holy family living as a tiny group of three in a tranquil kind of monastic-like carpenter shop is probably not likely. Like most people of the time, Mary and Joseph and their children probably lived near extended family. And sometimes there would be three or four houses of one or two rooms each kind of built together around an open courtyard. Typically, relatives would then share an oven, the cistern, and the millstone for grinding grain. Mary, most likely, spent on the average 10 hours a day on domestic chores, like carrying water from a nearby well or stream. She would be gathering wood for the fire, cooking meals, washing utensils, and washing clothes. We have no idea what Mary looked like, but we know she was not that blue-eyed, blonde-haired Madonna that so often graces Christmas cards and even famous paintings. Whether she was beautiful or not, she would have had features like other Israeli and Palestinian women of today, dark hair, and dark eyes. It's doubtful that Mary knew how to read or write because 
literacy was extremely rare among Jewish women of the time. The culture was highly oral with public readings of the Old Testament scriptures and they would tell stories and they would recite poems and sing songs. And this was how they learned memorization and repetition. And this is important for us to understand because for every Jewish young woman, there was a hope that she would be the one to give birth to the promised Messiah. Why? Well, the very first messianic prophecy is actually found in the very beginning of the Bible. That's in Genesis chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. You're familiar with this. The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel, unquote. Now this carrying God's promise of a seed, this is what every woman hoped for. It was what she learned from the time she was little through recitation of the scriptures. Every Jewish woman wondered, will it be me? And if you reflect back on many of the stories of the Old Testament women, they had this incredibly strong desire to bear sons. That was Sarah, Rachel, Hannah, many, many others. Every woman hoped she would be the one to bear the son who was the promised seed. And it's important for us to realize that the Messiah's coming was not just this forgotten secret. It was repeated. It was the repeated revelation of God to his people in the Old Testament. So they constantly were remembering this, even though we've said Mary most likely could not read because unlike boys who went to school, girls did not. Mary would have known the Old Testament because the Old Testament was memorized. Oral tradition would have made her and all young women familiar with the many Old Testament prophecies. Genesis 3, verse 15. The Messiah will be the seed, offspring of a woman, and will crush the head of Satan. Genesis 12, 3. He would come from the seed, offspring of Abraham, and would bless all nations on earth. Deuteronomy 18, 15. He would be a prophet like Moses, to whom God said we must listen. Micah 5, 2. He would be born in Bethlehem of Judah. Isaiah 7, 14. He would be born of a virgin. 2 Samuel 7, 16. He would have a throne a kingdom, and a dynasty 
starting with King David, that would last forever. Isaiah 9, 6-7 He would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and would possess an everlasting kingdom. Zechariah 9, verses 9-10 through 10. He would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, righteous and having salvation, coming with gentleness. Isaiah 53, 5. He would be pierced for our transgression and crushed for our iniquity. Psalm 16, verse 10. He would be resurrected from the grave for God would not allow his Holy One to suffer decay. Daniel 7, 13 through 14. He would come again from the clouds of heaven as the son of man. Malachi 4.2. He would be the son of righteousness for all who revere him and look for his coming again. So Mary, just like all the other Jewish women over time, knew all of the above scripture. But even though she knew what they had said, Mary's act of obedience let it be done to me, as you say, is still remarkable. Imagine her humility and probably fear in knowing that what she had learned about in the scriptures since she was a little girl was literally going to be fulfilled in her womb. And after Mary gives her famous consent to becoming the mother of God, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done to me according to thy word. That's in Luke chapter 1, verse 38. The gospel writer then tells us that Mary goes to help her aging relative Elizabeth, whom she has been told is also with child. And Luke said, quote, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a city of Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth, unquote. Now, it's traditionally believed that Mary received this message of Elizabeth's pregnancy while she was still at home in Nazareth. And the Bible doesn't tell us precisely where Elizabeth was living, other than in the hill country in the city of Judah. Church tradition believes that this was actually in a place called Ein Karim, which is south of Jerusalem, a hundred miles from Mary's home, which means the journey to Ein Karim would have taken Mary at least three days, depending on which route she took. You know, I have to admit, I never really thought that much about this visit that Mary took to visit Elizabeth, because I always just kind of assumed that Elizabeth live nearby, but clearly she didn't. So now we have this young girl, 12, 13 years old, going to visit her relative. And I have a map of what her route most likely looked like on my website, studentofthebible.com. Travel back then was dangerous. Ein Karim is on the outskirts of Jerusalem. It's about 2,400 feet above sea level. 
Nazareth, on the other hand, is only about 1,100 feet above sea level. So this means that Mary had to trek uphill about 1,300 feet in elevation. So besides that physical toll that it must have taken on a newly pregnant Mary, the path that wound through the mountain regions, well, historians believe that during that time, it was a popular place for thieves to hang out, for anybody who was an easy target. And certainly a young girl traveling by herself would have been an easy target. Therefore, she wouldn't have traveled alone. Even though Luke does not mention anyone other than Mary visiting Elizabeth, it's extremely likely that Mary would have traveled with a few companions for safety, maybe even Joseph himself. Now, because of this long distance that Mary had to travel, it's actually understandable why the Bible says that Mary stayed with Elizabeth three months. It wasn't just a quick weekend getaway. When Mary arrives, we learn that Mary's relative Elizabeth is so excited. And the baby that Elizabeth is carrying, who is going to be John the Baptist, literally leapt in her womb. Elizabeth exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is this child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. End quote. And that's Luke 1, 42 through 45. It seems that Elizabeth has been informed that that. Mary is pregnant and carrying the Messiah. Clearly, the Holy Spirit told Elizabeth this. And I'm sure for Mary, her relative's affirmation of what she had been told, that's got to be reassuring. And Mary's probably thinking, I am so glad I didn't dream this. The Lord really did do this to me. Now, just for a moment, let's think about Elizabeth. We don't know exactly how Mary and Elizabeth are related. The Bible just tells us they're relatives. But look how warmly and humbly Elizabeth greets Mary. Remember, every Jewish woman has prayed that she will give birth to the Messiah. And Elizabeth has learned that it's Mary who is carrying the Christ child. Wouldn't you be a little bit envious? I mean, this is kind of a big deal. But Elizabeth seems genuinely overjoyed for Mary's happiness. And she knows that the child that she herself is carrying is going to play a really important role in God's plan. And here's what's so poignant about this moment. Both women don't know this at the time, but both of the children that they are carrying are going to be murdered. John the Baptist will be murdered by King Herod Antipas, that's the son of Herod the Great, and Jesus, of course, will be crucified on the cross, and in fact, 
Herod Antipas also plays a huge role in this. Once John the Baptist is born, the Bible doesn't mention Elizabeth again. Now, we know she was older when he was born, but we really have no idea if she was alive to see John become this great prophet leading the way to Jesus. But we do know that Elizabeth was blessed with this miracle birth in her old age and that she really played an important role in God's plan for redemption for the world. Luke tells us that when Elizabeth and Mary meet, Mary says this beautiful prayer. We call it the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior because he has regarded the lowliness of his handmaid for behold henceforth all generations shall call me blessed because he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is from generation to generation to those who fear him he has shown might with his arm. He has scattered his proud in the conceit of their heart. He has put down the mighty from their thrones, and he has exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has given help to Israel, his servant, mindful of his mercy. Even as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his posterity forever. Elizabeth, when she saw Mary, called her blessed. She said, blessed are you among women. And then Mary right here called herself blessed. She said, henceforth, all generations will call me blessed. Now, is this bragging? Was Mary being proud? I love the way my study Bible explains this. It says, quote, no, Mary wasn't being proud. Mary was recognizing and accepting the gift that God had given her. If Mary had denied her incredible position, she would have been throwing God's blessing back at him. Pride is refusing to accept God's gift or taking credit for what God has done. Humility is accepting the gifts and using them to praise and serve him. Mary said, because he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. She's acknowledging where this amazing gift came from. Here's a Bible truth. Don't deny or belittle your God-given gifts. Don't ignore your gifts. Thank God for them and use them for his glory. Now, in the Catholic Church, it is believed that Mary was what we call a perpetual virgin. In the Protestant faith, we look to Matthew's Gospel, which says that Joseph, quote, did not have sexual relations with her, until her son was born, unquote. That's in Matthew 
chapter 1, verse 25. Therefore, Protestants believe that the Gospels point to Jesus being the firstborn through immaculate conception, but that later after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had other children. Now, how do we know this? Well, from the Bible, we actually see that Mary most likely had at least four other sons and some daughters. It's in the Gospel of Mark. The Bible tells us that during Jesus's public ministry, Jesus faced constant opposition, right? Well, during one of these times, he was actually visiting his own hometown, and he's greeted by a group of skeptics who mention Jesus's family members by name. Now listen to this. This is found in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. It says, Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And his sisters, they live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe him, unquote. From this passage, we discovered Jesus most likely had four brothers and more than one sister, though the sisters are never named, so we don't know what their names were. It seems from the passage in Mark that these unbelievers in his hometown used this information against Jesus because they wanted to convince themselves and others that Jesus, ugh, he's just an ordinary guy from Nazareth. He can't possibly be the Messiah. We know him. We know his family. Now, for others, this passage is explained by saying that, well, we're all Jesus's brothers and sisters. And therefore, they weren't literally saying that these were Jesus's siblings. There is a belief that when Mary married Joseph, Joseph was older and a widow, and that he had children from a previous marriage. So those above-mentioned children were, in fact, Jesus's step-brothers and sisters. Honestly, whether Mary was a perpetual virgin or whether she raised other children after Jesus, I think we all can agree with what Pope Pius IX once said about her, and I quote, her life was to witness to the glory of her son, and we can't help but admire her for that. Her life was to witness to the glory of her son. What else do we learn about Mary from the Bible? In my final podcast in this series, we'll learn about what else the Bible says about Mary and what role she and Joseph played in raising Jesus. Today, my prayer for you is that may your life, like Mary, be a witness to the glory of his son. Have a blessed day.